Hello everyone, this is Eric Mikesino, host of the Belt Road Podcast. Just wanted to clarify quickly, this podcast was recorded in late February. Uh, since then, there's been quite a few changes in China-Kazakhstan relations and in Kazakhstan itself, including the chain name change of Astana to Nur Sultan. So excuse the data errors, but it's a great episode nevertheless. Hope you enjoy. And welcome to the Belt and Road Podcast, where we cover the latest news, research, and analysis on China's growing presence in the developing world. I'm your host, Eric Mikesterino, coming to you again from Durham, North Carolina. I'd like to remind everyone if you want the latest updates, up-to-date research publications, and news articles about the Belt and Road Initiative to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Belt and Road Pod. Well, so often, Belt and Road analysis focuses on one side of the coin and that is China, Uh, be it stories of a rising China, the China threat, uh, or from Xinhua, the win-win China that is here to support the construction of international public good, um, or a China that's starving for resources and has a pile of cash willing to invest anywhere and go everywhere. When other countries are usually taken into account, so often the stories of how either the US, the EU, Japan, or regions are responding, or how they'll focus on a specific country that has had a large rebuke or controversy with a particular project, such as in Sri Lanka, Malaysia, or Kenya. While these stories are very important, what's so often out of the picture is the manner in which recipient or host countries fit into the Belt and Road, and how their own domestic political, economic, and developmental agenda either fit within it or try to shape the Belt and Road itself. So that's why I'm so excited today to have on the show Asel Bitabarova. Asel is a PhD student at Hokkaido University in Sapporo, Japan, where her research focuses on China-Central Asian relations. I have her on the show today to talk about her latest article that was featured in the January Journal of Contemporary East Asian Studies. The article's title is Unpacking Sino-Central Asian Engagement Along the New Silk Road, a Case Study of Kazakhstan. Asel, all the way from Japan, thanks for coming on so late at night there. Thank you, Eric. Thanks for having me. In your introduction, I like how you frame the idea that China's engagement in the region is not a one-way road, but rather a process of constant negotiation and bargaining in which Central Asian states are not passive bystanders, but proactive agents working to affect the course of the quote-unquote game. So let's contextualize this. First, on the Chinese end, why is Kazakhstan so important for the Chinese state within the Silk Road economic belt? Sure. Kazakhstan is important to China's new grand initiative for a number of interconnected reasons. And it is perhaps obvious that geography is a critical factor as Kazakhstan's importance lies in its geographic location. So first, if you now imagine the map of the Eurasian continent, you'll see this huge landlocked country located literally in the middle of the continent. So Kazakhstan serves as a sort of natural bridge connecting China, not only with Europe, but also with the Caucasus and Western Asia through both land routes and, and the Caspian Sea. And furthermore, this strategic quality is reinforced by the country's uh, physical geography. It's terrain of vast flat lands combined with decent transport infrastructure. For instance, this factor naturally gives great advantage to Kazakhstan over other China's neighbors to the west, uh, such as Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and to some extent even Pakistan, because of their topographic features, as well as poor infrastructure. And second, Kazakhstan is important to Beijing because it is located in the immediate neighborhood of China's Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. And China watchers all know Xinjiang 
was officially designated as a core area, Xinqiu of the Silk Road Economic Belt. So being Xinjiang's foremost partner in both security and economic matters, Kazakhstan naturally becomes the most important partner for the Silk Road Economic Belt as well. And I'll give you just one example. Please. In the realm of infrastructure connectivity, Kazakhstan is a central link of China-Central Asia connectivity as all rail links and oil and gas pipelines run through the territory of Kazakhstan to enter China Xinjiang. And these all railroads and pipelines are also Xinjiang's only existing international uh, links that are under operation. These factors and Chinese engagement existed prior to the development when Xi Jinping was actually in Kazakhstan to what many people say was the beginning of the Belt and Road Initiative in 2013. And just in your view, has there been a change in engagement from before and after? Or has there been an intensity of engagement? And what were these drivers? So first, I would highlight that after the announcement of this initiative, Kazakhstan holds an even greater value in the eyes of Chinese policymakers uh, from the strategic point of view. Again, if you look, for example, at these railings, specifically if you look at the regular direct China-Europe rail freight services, you would see that it services through the middle corridor, uh, dramatically increasing in frequency, and while Kazakhstan is a key element of this corridor. So we'll see that actually it intensifies. And second, connected to the first one, I think there is also reputational driver or factor that is important to Beijing. So Kazakhstan is needed to sort of showcase the success of their new Silk Road. As you have already mentioned, many factors, even many of the ongoing projects actually began in, in, in the Fujintao era, but now are incorporated under the Silk Road banner. But they are still important, they are still ongoing. And so one realm I think is important for this sort of reputational yeah, the uh, fact that the the fact that it's even being highlighted creates, in a reputational sense, it creates more intensity mm-hmm. of this engagement and of hopefully furthering cooperation or making sure that these projects go well is not only an economic thing but a political thing. Would you say that's true? Yes, and also I think third driver and one of the most important drivers probably, uh, China-Kazakhstan engagement has become more intense uh, in the recent years is perhaps because of Kazakhstan's, uh, like Astana's proactive stance towards Beijing initiative, as maybe we'll talk uh, later. Uh, yeah. Kazakhstan here like, announced to coordinate its national develop- development agenda with uh, China's Silk Road economic belt. And uh, actually, this fact, uh, this Kazakhstan's proactive stance is pretty often highlighted in the Chinese official discourse. Yeah, and actually, that you read my mind on the next question. Um, I wanted to look at the other side of the spectrum. I loved in how you highlighted in your piece that in May of 2012, I mean, the Kazakhstan president had a had a meeting in which he highlighted the 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 want to foster a new Silk Road that included infrastructure development and the like, many things that sound like the Belt and Road Initiative. And so, how do elites in Astana and in Kazakhstan in general interpret the Belt and Road Initiative, and how have they been trying to utilize it for their own political objectives? Yeah, thank you. Good question. Well, actually, uh, this uh, the discourse of Silk Road 
of infrastructure connectivity or as a sort of friendship between peoples of China and Kazakhstan, uh, this discourse has existed, you know, since since early 90s after Kazakhstan has got its independence. So it's not like Xi Jinping was the first to announce uh, this, uh, uh, you know, this sort of uh, idea. For instance, all important speeches made by Chinese leaders like Li Peng or uh, Jiang Zemin in 90s and later uh, by Hu Jintao in Tashkent, they all actually have mentioned uh, the Silk Road, a sort of symbol uh, of connectedness. And uh, in Kazakhstan, actually, this idea has always been sort of like present uh, in official discourse, even I know in in first works of Kazakhstan's president Nazarbayev, I think it was uh, ninety four in ninety four in his book he highlighted the importance of two great neighbors of Kazakhstan, Russia and China, so that these two neighbors are the gates to international markets, uh, you know, to, to, to the ocean. So this sort of China's role to upgrade, to integrate Kazakhstan to this world or sort of trade always been seen as sort of key mm-hmm. factor. Yeah. Uh, so like for Kazakhstan, well, K- Kazakh elites actively welcomed this initiative. And so they they just trying to use it to first of all surely it's uh, in the infrastructure realm and actually there is uh, a second realm that is often missed from the current discussions is that Kazakhstan is trying to utilize uh, this initiative to build up its industry. Can you go into some of the infrastructure projects that uh, elites in Kazakhstan were trying to build or try to utilize the Belt and Road Initiative to build for their own domestic purposes and also trying to foster the agriculture and industrial sector and what kind of programs they would have started to try to utilize the Belt and Road Initiative in order to bolster their own economic development agendas? Okay, uh, so in the infrastructure realm, of course, first and foremost sort of sh- showcase project is Horgos. Although it started in the Who era, it's still an ongoing project. And there is, uh, for instance, a brand new town uh, was built uh, near Horgos called Nurkent. And the government actually announced it's planning to build Nurkent 2, so second Nurkent town. That is actually uh, to serve in this town. They are workers of this Horgos Altenkol railway station. They mm-hmm. live over there and it's a kind of, you know, to serve this complex, uh, Horgos complex. And, uh, there are few also domestic infrastructure projects. And we can highlight maybe it is the most important, the largest project, Jeskazran Binyo Railway, uh, mm-hmm. which actually connects uh, the central part, uh, with the western part of Kazakhstan. And it has strategic importance to the country as these areas uh, are not connected. And so although this uh, construction of railway was announced uh, prior to BRI, but it, it finished uh, recently and it, sort, it, it has a sort of uh, huge importance to Kazakhstan, so strategic importance. Also, I, I didn't mention in the article 
Um, but to Presidents Nazarbayev and Xi Jinping, they initially announced uh, to build rail link connecting Horgos uh, with Aktau. Mm-hmm. But actually, well, I think they, they gave up with this idea. Mm, okay. Because, uh, because uh, well, I think uh, it's not really economically feasible. But still, Kazakhstan is trying to improve, to build up sort of east-west connectedness uh, domestically. Within the context of building infrastructure, whether it be railroads or roads within the Belt and Road Initiative in Kazakhstan, um, especially within the countries that surround China's border, uh, there's a lack of understanding as to who plans the route. Like, where does this railroad go from this city to this city or this road going from this city to this city? Do you know about anything about how uh, it was planned? It was it completely on the Kazakhstan end. Was it was there's Chinese input about where they wanted the railroad to get to because it was going to cross uh, Kazakhstan and then go throughout uh, Central and South Asia to Europe, and so it needed to go a specific route. Or uh, do you have any information or thoughts or ideas about that or the contestation that exists within the negotiation between China and Kazakhstan as to where to place this infrastructure? Well, if it comes to uh, the direct connection, uh, you know, between Kazakhstan and China, uh, these two direct links at Dostok, Alashenko, and Horgos, they actually they were opened in early 90s, and Horgos was opened in 2012. So it's sort of you know it was Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao era. So these two railings. Well, they have potential. And for instance, Horgos, actually, it was uh, the very first border checkpoint that opened uh, on this western part of China in in, in 19th century. And uh, if we come to Kazakhstan's domestic rail wings or its other international uh, rail uh, rail links, I think it's more like uh, Kazakhstan negotiate with other foreign counterparts, for instance, like Turkmenistan or Iran. We, we've got a new uh, recently built rail wing running to Gorgan. Uh, so it's more like negotiation between Kazakhstan and other counterparts. And in terms of domestic railings, well, I think it's more like Kazakhstani government decides what Kazakhstan needs more. For instance, in the years of independence, we got some railways in their north, like western north part, for example, like connecting some cities. But mm-hmm. actually, uh, prior to that, these railings had to run through Russian territory. Uh, yeah, but now, for example, they built a uh, rail link around Romtau. It's sort of like mm-hmm. a small town. So now you don't need to, you know, uh, enter Russian territory. So now it's connected, like, you know, inside of Kazakhstan. What is important, I think, that especially when oil prices were high, well, Kazakhstan put uh, a large amount of money to upgrade its infrastructure system. And it's important that Kazakhstan was able to, you know, to invest to pay for that. So to Beijing, I think it's an important factor as well, that it has a sort of responsible, I know, more or less economically stable uh, stakeholder. So going back to Kazakhstan economic development engagement throughout the Belt and Road Initiative through the agricultural and industrial sector, can you talk about 
how politicians within Kazakhstan have tried to infuse Belt and Road financing and Chinese expertise in order to lift or upgrade certain sectors of industry or certain sectors of agriculture? Yes, sure. Mm, So unlike this transport connectivity realm, cooperation between uh, Astana and Beijing in the area of manufacturing industries has received little attention, or there is uh, little research done on this topic. But I think this is the most dynamic part of current uh, China-Kazakhstan cooperation. And, well, to date, a total of 51 projects has been selected, valued at about 27.7 billion U.S. dollars. For industrial projects? Yes. uh, Wow. It's called like uh, industrial cooperation. So okay. uh, on Kazakhstani side, we call this a kind of build-up uh, industrial capacities. Mm-hmm. And well, actually, I think it is the central part of Kazakhstani initiative to link up its domestic development program, Nuruzhol, uh, with Chinese Silk Road Economic Belt. And the reason for that is, well, because oil prices and there is, well, lack of finances and yeah. lack of finances, as well as uh, I think the sort of Kazakhstan, Kazakhstani government has realized that it needs to diversify its economy. And so this timing I think the announcement of Chinese initiative and falling oil prices kind of uh, coincided and the Kazakhstani government was quick to utilize this initiative for building up its manufacturing capacity. Well, they are, uh, this project, 51 projects, they are under, let's say, construction in several areas or like chemical industry, construction, agriculture, infrastructure, and so on. And, uh, well, the thing is that few data available on these projects. Mm-hmm. So we don't really know um, how successful or not they are. Yeah. And, for example, I, I don't really have uh, the data for this year. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, this uh, step on Kazakhstani uh, side shows uh, that it tries to use Chinese initiative, you know, to resolve its own uh, domestic uh, development problems. And another factor that is uh, sort of missed from attention is that there is sort of, let's say, attempt to change the structure of trade. And on Kazakhstani side, uh, we can see that it's trying to reshape it and try to use it, this initiative to export its agricultural products. Uh, in the tra- trade sector, the new development is that Kazakhstani agriculture producers began to export its products to China uh, maybe it's still limited in volume, but uh, nevertheless, we can. Uh, has there been has there been growth within certain segment of? Uh, I don't. I'm very ignorant about Kazakhstan's agricultural. What what's available? Has there been any growth to Chinese exports since the Belt and Road Initiative has taken shape? Well, maybe Kazakhstani agriculture uh, business sector has been looking at China as a market uh, maybe for quite uh, a long time, but it's only recently that they started to export products, for example, meat, wheat, or some seeds, honey. 
and is actually the outcome of uh, recent negotiations. And going back to the industrial sector, uh, with these 57 projects, I know you said that information is very hard to come by in it. And anyone who listens to the show probably knows how difficult getting Chinese data is. And it's probably much more difficult Chinese data of a project within Kazakhstan. But do you have, you know, one example of one type of plant or one type of industry that's been invested in? And do you know anything about um, the structure of the money that's coming into these industrial projects? I mean, is this still state to state? you know, XM Bank, uh, China Development Bank funding, or is, are these uh, Chinese companies or even private firms coming in or semi-private firms coming in with their own money and investing into different segments to try to either industrialize a segment of Kazakhstan's agricultural or investing in the cement plant? Do you have any type of information or one antidote? Oh, um, yeah, I think this uh, financing part, uh, well, as um, as far as I, I know, uh, to my best knowledge, um, well, at, at least it's announced uh, is a joint fund between Silk Road Fund and Kazakhstani uh, by Turek. But I think there actually larger part of this financing is coming from China. And there are a number of projects, I would say, sort of not really like large scale, like uh, at a more smaller scale, for example, there is oil processing factory uh, built jointly, but investor is coming from China Xi'an. And I don't really know all this, I know, financing part, but as far as I know, this investor is putting its own money to the project. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. And so, you know, a discussion about China, Kazakhstan, and the Belgian Road Initiative really can't be had without talking about the plight of, you know, up to a million Uyghurs and ethnic Kazakhs that have been in basically internment camps in Xinjiang and the gross violation of the most basic human rights. Uh, you know, has been going on. There has been repression within Xinjiang for decades, but it's certainly accelerated in the past few years greatly. Um, in the context of your research, how has the downward spiral of repression in Xinjiang affected the political and economic relations between the two countries and their respective development agendas? Well, yeah, it's a very good and very difficult question. If we look at this sort of official discourse, I would say it hasn't really affected negatively if we look at these political or economic realms. Mm-hmm. And Kazakhstani government will officially say that it is China's uh, you know, internal affairs and uh, Kazakhstan doesn't interfere right, in these domestic affairs. But as we uh, see at all this sort of diplomacy going on between two countries, uh, well, Kazakhstan, I think, uh, is trying to negotiate, is trying to talk about it. But the reason is because among Kazakhs, well, detained in Xinjiang, they are Kazakhs with Kazakhstani uh, citizenship. Uh, so Kazakhstani government has to talk uh, with Chinese counterparts. And for instance, starting from autumn 2007, Kazakhstani officials from uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs Mm-hmm. Uh, so starting uh, in 2007, well, they, they traveled to China, visit Xinjiang and try to talk. And I think there's quite a of diplomacy is going on there. But what is important, I think, is that uh, the 
actual impact on you know, ordinary people. Although this sort of official surface, official discourse is not really like affected. Mm-hmm. At least, you know, like, of course, maybe behind the scenes, there are talks and there are sort of quite, uh, well, sensitive stories. For instance, um, there were uh, reports that Kazakhstani official uh, from consulate in Xinjiang traveled to some settlement and there were sort of, not scandal, um, but Chinese government didn't like uh, this act. Mm-hmm. And I think there are sort of things going on, but we don't really know. But if we look at the actual impact on ordinary citizens, we can see how Kazakhstan, Kazakhstani grassroots movements, Mm -hmm. uh, actually, they are bringing attention to this issue. And there are a number of people and movements uh, that are trying to raise their voice and reach out uh, domestic and foreign audience. And, for example, there are a lot of testimonies recorded by uh, Atajurt. It's a sort of quality grassroots uh, human rights movement. Mm-hmm. And what actually they are doing is recording all these testimonies of victims and even of those people who were on the other side, uh, for example, worked in internal camps, like, for example, as policemen or teachers. And this evidence is of global importance and that uh, Kazakhstan, you know, has become a sort of, you know, source for this information, I think is a huge importance. And Beijing as well, I think, is reacting to that. Uh, So, uh, for instance, in... It was late October last year. Beijing sent a group of people led by Xing Guangcheng, mm-hmm. who is actually a Central Asian expert. And now I think uh, he's director of uh, Chinese Social Science Academy, I think it's Institute of Borderland, uh, like studies, geography and history, something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, he led this delegation, official delegation from t- China to Kazakhstan, you know, to talk about this issue. Uh, so I think this uh, demonstrates that Beijing is concerned uh, by, you know, this, let's say, uh, the formation of negative popular attitudes in Kazakhstan. And what is important that uh, Kazakhstani government is allowing to work, you know, I mean, to these grassroots movements, uh, because the government, I think, has all the power to shut them down if it wishes. <laughs> Yeah, but their opening or the leaving of a window for this organization to exist shows at least tacit support for the work, you would say? Well, I think uh, there are quite of um, complex, complicated developments, um, but yeah, till now we can uh, say it's a sort of tacit support, but I'm not sure about the future, and I think the government is under pressure. Yeah, it's it's a... Um... It's a, it's, it's, it's been a sad state of affairs in Xinjiang. A somber note to end on, but thank you so much for, Asel. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Uh, stick around for recommendations as I introduce you once more. Uh, you've been listening to our conversation with Asel Bitabarova. She is a PhD student at Hokkaido University in Sapporo, Japan, where her research focuses on China Central Asia relations. Uh, we spoke about her latest article from the Journal of Contemporary East Studies that came out in January called Unpacking Sino-Central Asian Engagement Along the New Silk Road, a Case Study of Kazakhstan. Uh, highly recommend you read it. So, 
Asel, do you have a recommendation for our listeners today? Oh, yeah, sure. So my first recommendation would be a book published last year, 2018. was a sort of joint project by George Washington University and Azerbaijan University. The title is China's Belt and Road Initiative and its Impact in Central Asia. Uh, so it was edited by uh, Marlene Laurel. And uh, second one, it's uh, a new article published in journal Central Asian Survey. Uh, so it was published last fall in September. The author is Adrian Zenz, and the yeah. title is Thoroughly Reforming Them Towards a Healthy Heart Attitude, China's Political Reeducation Campaign in Xinjiang. So... Yeah, so there are sort of um, a lot of information, uh, research done on, well, recent developments. And I think he used a lot of official sources to show the scale um, of this uh, ongoing securitization in Xinjiang. Great. Definitely we'll read and I'll put those in the show notes for everyone else to have easy access to. Uh, thanks for those recommendations. I have two recommendations as well today. Uh, the first one is a short piece from Chatham House uh, called The Rise of China's Private Armies. It just talks about the private security forces in which have uh, had to be built up domestically within China and also its connection to (laughs) good old uh, Eric Prince always shows up everywhere doing um, (laughs) terrible things. Um, But uh, And his new organization, uh, post-Blackwater FSG, uh, that's trying to build its own private security force to securitize some of the projects along the Belt and Road. So it's a good read um, about that. And secondly, it's actually a recommendation that came on episode seven with uh, Juliet Liu, but she recommended the book, The Spectre of Global China, Politics, Labor, and Foreign Investment in Africa by Qing Kuang Li. And right after she recommended it, I hadn't read it yet. And so I picked it up and I it read like a novel. I, it was It's amazing ethnographic fieldwork of... Uh, of uh, the author spent seven years and off and on in Zambia throughout mines and construction sites, um, analyzing and contextualizing Chinese capital as opposed to traditional Western or, 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 or globalized capital and to see what is what are the differences, if there are differences. And the idea of profit maximization against uh, Chinese capital, which is profit optimization, uh, and how that relates to on the ground to labor and and a whole host of other factors. And so I can't recommend that book highly enough. So The Spectre of Global China by Qing Kuang Li. Asel, thanks again for coming on to the Belt and Road podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. It was my pleasure. You've been listening to the Belt and Road podcast. To follow the latest articles, research, and analysis on the Belt and Road Initiative, follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Our handle is at Belt and Road Pod. This show has been hosted by me, Eric Mike Serino, and edited by Jason MacRonald. Jason, thank you so much for all the work that you do. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>